Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is lunchtime on uh, October the 8th on the West Coast. And in spite of all Donald Trump's shenanigans, things seem to be quite good for some people, especially on Wall Street. When you look at some of America's biggest corporations, the money is being made or at least perceived to be being made. Um, Nike Corporation, for example, is up radically. When you look at their stock market price of 130, it's been going up consistently over the last three months uh, in the midst of the corona crisis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything at Nike is going well. If you work at Nike, things aren't so great. They announced a couple of days ago that they had massive layoffs. So Nike in many ways epitomizes the moral complexity, to use a euphemism about American capitalism. The uh, the investors and the directors are doing very well and the workers aren't doing so well. Nike is also an interesting company because I think it epitomizes some of the other moral contradictions of American 21st century capitalism. My guest today uh, Matt Hart is an investigative journalist and the author of a really important new book uh, critiquing uh, the culture at Nike, the cheating, corrupt culture. His book is called uh, Win at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. Uh, Matt, before we get into Nike itself, does it somehow capture what I call these moral contradictions of American capitalism. On the one hand, it makes money radically for its investors. On the other hand, it lays people off and cheats uh, many of its consumers. Your book, by the way, I note, uh, you say on May 3rd, 2018, amid one of the most turbulent periods in Nike's history, shares of their stock hit a record $86. They're up to one 30 now. That's an increase almost of 60 or 70 percent. What's going right or wrong broadly at Nike? Well, recently, I think they've made the pivot in the uh, coronavirus era to uh, sales online, and that's gone really well for them. Um, So that's 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 uh, caused the recent increase in stock price. As I argue through the book, though, uh, regardless of the uh, incendiary news that's frequently uh, coming out in, in major newspapers and magazines. Um, the stock price does, as you mentioned, and as, you're sh- as we're seeing here, continue to climb. Um, there seems to be a no scandal big enough to, to really take a, to really knock the stock down. Um, and, you know, that's, Nike is the prom- preeminent uh, footwear brand in the world. Um, and yeah, they, they have taken the tack that, when at all costs or the ends quite literally always justify the means. Mm. Uh, Everybody, of course, is familiar with the Nike swoosh. 
And many people would be familiar with Phil Knight, the founder, the charismatic, again, morally, uh, shall we say, complex figure who founded Nike. Give, give, give me a, a, a potted history of this company, uh, Matt. Uh, was it bad from the beginning? Was it always rotten? That's hard to say. Um, there are some indications of that, and it you know obviously depends how you look at it. You know, Phil Knight was a, was an Oregon running athlete, really good at the mile. Uh, went on to run for the University of Oregon, where he was where he met and was coached by uh, legendary coach Bill Bowerman. And you know, after he graduated, he went to Stanford. Um, he got an idea in his mind that he could import running shoes because he was a, a big runner, uh, as was his. Uh, community and his friends. I don't suppose, Matt, they give much of a moral education at Stanford. I'm talking to you from Berkeley, where, of course, we educate people morally. But at Stanford, do they teach you to think to cheat? I'm not, uh, I'm not sure there were classes on that, but there should be. Um, what you know? What he figured out, he had, he had read a story, actually, a newspaper story, that they're, they're um, importing cameras from Japan. You could sell cheap products in America at a, at a great uh, increase in price. And so he basically applied that model to running shoes. And so he went to Japan and he and ended up getting a meeting before he even had a business or a business plan with uh, Onitsuka, which is a shoe company based in Japan that were really big in basketball shoes and sort of dominating the basketball shoe market at the time in Japan. And uh, he made a deal with them to send some shoes back to America, where he then handed them out to his coach at the University of Oregon. And so the two men then hatched a plan to to start a business, which they initially called Blue Ribbon Sports and eventually became Nike. Your book, Win at All Costs, is less of a an overall expose of Nike and their business practices, which uh, people other people have written about, and you've you've done some other work as a journalist. And, and it, it but instead it focuses on the Nike Oregon project, uh, which um, which centered on this Again, very uh, controversial figure, Alberto Salazar. Who is Salazar, uh, Matt, and, and how does he connect with the Nike Oregon project? Yeah, Salazar's a, a Cuban-born American, moved here when he was just a child, who had um, kind of grown up in the Boston running scene and become quite famous as a runner uh, early on. And so went to the University of Oregon, you know, inspired by Steve Prefontaine, Bill Bowerman, these big names in Oregon track running and ran for the University of Oregon, ran quite well and became a professional um, when he left school and was sponsored by Nike. He's widely seen as, uh, you know, his contract with Nike is widely seen as the first big money contract in the sport of professional running. Um, and after his career, uh, you know, sort of unceremoniously crashed, he had issues with overtraining and, and uh, injury. Cheat? Was he a cheat? Matt? Uh, there's evidence of that. Yeah, I mean, he... Um, evidence? You're saying <laughs> he, he was or he wasn't? He claims t he used testosterone, which he wasn't telling us about until this reporting, until the USADA report came out, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And he claims still that he was off it when he raced. Now, one could argue that this is a gray area. Uh, I would argue that, you know, the testosterone use uh, is illegal and should exclude him from the results that he got uh, when he since the day he started taking it. And he's admitted to starting to take it in 91. He won his last race in 1994. 
um, you know, and people I talked to, other athletes in the sport, Frank Shorter, American gold medal winner, you know, they all knew Alberta was into experimenting with things. Now, not all of them were illegal. Some of them were just dubious. Uh, but he had this reputation that when he started to coach the Nike athletes on the Nike campus, he sort of brought that idea and that ethos with him. And we're going to try everything we can and see what sticks and makes us the best runners on earth. So what he brought was the ethos, if that's the right word, of, of winning at all costs. Um, get under the covers of, of Salazar for me, Matt. Why are so many of these characters in American sports, in particular in athletics, why are they cheats? Why don't they have any moral foundation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's hard to, I think it's a stepwise process, to be honest. They, they likely start out, you know, not as cheaters or at least not using banned drugs in high school and college, but the professional ranks in America and worldwide just sort of, you know, it, it has to, by its own nature, it ratchets up what's at stake, contracts, multi-million dollar contracts uh, with Nike and other brands and, you know, a whirlwind of, of financial uh, uh, winnings if you, if you win. And so I think that just allows people to justify um, doing certain things that you and I skeptically can, would step back and objectively say, why would you do that? What are you doing? You know, why would that even be worth it? Um, but. So, so, Matt, the, the the story of win at all costs, which is essentially the story of, of, of Salazar's rotten program at Nike, quite literally fell into your lap. How, how, how did you come to write this story? Yeah. So years ago, I was an athlete myself. So I'm in the circles. I'm in the running circles. And when I became a journalist, of course, I followed my journalistic curiosity. And I wrote a lot about human-powered sports, running, mountain climbing. And so for years, I had been reporting. I'd also been, you know, a, a great Lance Armstrong fan initially and sort of burned by that story. So I followed along. I read all the books. And When you said burned, you mean you were disappointed that your hero turned out to be a cheat? Disheartened, to say the least. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't very long to, into his reign that I figured it out because when you're in the community – and my local bike mechanic was the one to tell me, you know, that guy's a cheat. And he had only won two tours to France at the time. So the people in the sport know what's going on. And, and anyway, so I had this interest from my past. And when I became a journalist, I started writing more and more about sports. And then, of course, was attracted to this story. But because I had written about performance enhancing drugs, I'll, I'll say a, a confidential source because I don't name the person, but I was sent this. USB drive, and on the USB drive was a file titled TikTok, TikTok, dot, dot, dot. Um, and that was a stolen document. And we think that the Fancy Bear Russian hacking organization stole the document from USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And it was basically the US, USADA's en entire case against Alberto Salazar, the Dr. Jeffrey Brown, the team endocrinologist, and the Nike athletes. And so this was a private file that was supposed to only be shared with the Texas Medical Board. And uh, the ha Russian hackers uh, set it off into the world and it arrived at my door. Uh, and when I plugged it in, I realized, oh, I've, I've, uh, I've got something here that needs to be reported on. And, and, and I dived in and wrote a story, a front page story for The New York Times about what was on that file. This is not Nike's first involvement with, with cheats. I know that they sponsored a number of professional athletes who turned out to be profoundly dishonest. Mm -hmm. um, 
Tell me briefly about Nike's history with sporting cheats before Salazar. Yeah, well, they had a team that is analogous to, in some ways, the um, the origin of the Nike Oregon project, which they'd happened to build and create in the ni- late 1970s and early 1980s. And that team, as I discussed in the book, sort of also dissolved into rumors and drug cheating uh, instances and someone who actually died and passed away uh, after doing a workout uh, in the Nike facilities. And so, you know, their, I mean, their history is pretty deep from Mary, Lance Armstrong, Marion Jones, more recently, Justin Gatlin, who had served a ban. And then uh, for whatever reason, Nike decided he'd be a great guy to hire on. And, and then that obvious reason is that he might be the only one that could beat Usain Bolt, which he did uh, after Nike re-signed him. But they also, there's a litany of coaches that have been implicated and or banned that are, are no longer in the sport. So in some ways, Salazar is as much a, a, a symbolic figure. I mean, you, you, you got lucky and, and got this file, but there are probably other stories that are, are still untold. What astonishes me about uh, the story, uh, Matt, is you show how rotten the Oregon Project was and, and, and how Salazar was a professional cheat. And yet, not only is he still free, but he still might even be working for Nike. That's right. All indications are that he still works there and they are paying for his defense. So he's been, uh, he was banned by the United States Anti-Doping Agency and went through arbitration, which he lost. And so the ban was served to him September 30th, 2019. And he still has one more chance to beat the case, uh, likely to happen in November in Switzerland. But they have supported him throughout, uh, you know, in December. So after Alberta was banned in September and then I, October, I think three weeks later, their CEO stepped down. Now, Nike has said this had nothing to do with their uh, homegrown coach being discredited and banned from sport. That's somewhat hard to believe, but we'll take, I take to take them at their word. Regardless, in, by December, they were reopening a building named after Alberto on the Nike campus. And the rank and file uh, employee at Nike picketed, more than 400 people picketed their own corporate campus with signs saying, we believe the women and believe Mary Kane, who was one of the athletes that, um, you know, came to light. She thinks she, she's testified that, you know, she thinks Alberto abused her on some level emotionally and physically, and, you know, had given her uh, dubious substances to take to get her lighter. Long story short, they, they seem to still be um, funding and bankrolling his defense. Yeah. Meanwhile, as I said at, at the beginning, uh, Nike are laying people off. Perhaps some of those people demonstrating lost their jobs like the people demonstrating against Amazon and their stock price continues to rise. I assume that Nike's management's unwillingness to go after Salazar is somehow related to their stock market price and their valuation. And it's not really in the company's interest to fire this guy or even acknowledge any kind of misdoing. Yeah, it's it's part of their playbook to not really acknowledge along the way. And, you know, 1992, I think Harper's Magazine came out with the sweatshop allegations about Nike. And they were pretty much mom's word on that. And that's been the playbook ever since. And that's what I ran into as right. well. I, I managed to talk to many people that worked there and, and, and had previously worked there. But the corporate uh, policy is not to talk to journalists without uh, someone giving you the OK from communications department. Matt, you mentioned um, 
uh, one of the female athletes who who claimed that Salazar had, uh, in some ways, abused her, or she had been abused on the program. Uh, you make the argument in the book that there is a strong uh, element of discrimination, particularly, well, generally against athletes, I guess, or athletes who are honest, but particularly against female athletes. Here we have uh, Cara Goucher, who is a, a well-known American athlete. Uh, what are the sexual politics of this scandal? Well, in 2018, there's a lawsuit that's still working its way through the courts where uh, a group of women accused Nike of being what they called an unclimbable pyramid for women. They could not get to the upper ranks and pointed out the further you get up, the fewer women there are. Um, you know, there's obviously the glaring uh, fact that, you know, they serve and sell to uh, the African-American community. And there's likewise a striking, a striking uh, absence, let's say of African-Americans on, in the upper uh, reaches of the executive suites at Nike. And so... Surprise, surprise. I mean, there are so many other American companies like that as well, right? Yeah. So... But is, is Nike particularly egregious in that area? It does seem like... I mean, recent pe people in the upper ranks that they've recently let go, pushed aside or fired, uh, have come out, you know, in the research of this book, they were particularly egregious, just kind of unbelievable stories from John Capriati, the head of running sports marketing, who, you know, was willing to and known for threatening other coaches. Um, you know, so they have, they seem to have had uh, an upper management that was full of um, problemed men who, uh, you know, maybe didn't comport themselves in a way that's uh, at all considered honorable. Trevor Edwards is another executive that was next in line to be the CEO of the company. And after these women came forward, uh, they had to let him go, and they let a lot of his team go. He apparently had this um, group of men uh, that served with him and for him that they had to basically scrape the company free of them because they were so toxic. When I look at this picture of, of Goucher and this sort of, n not her manipulation, but the manipulation by media and companies like Nike of the American flag, it's also very creepy. To what extent is Nike appropriating the symbols of America and American success for its own corporate benefit, for its own short-term profit? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, the Nike Oregon Project, the team that the book mainly focuses on, was really launched to bring American running back to prominence, to put American athletes back on the podium. Um, so, you know, Nike is an American brand and they're in their obviously proud of that and um you know they have they have many discussions about you know the lack of american athletes winning gold medals or um you know finishing in the top three say of these prominent marathons across the world it's a real concern for them you know running as a category in 2019 earned them 4.5 billion dollars of the three point or of the 39 billion dollars of revenue the company brought in that year so it's a huge category for them. And if they don't have athletes finishing and winning races, um, then they feel like they're going to lose ground in that market. And it's a huge market for them. Matt, there are going to be a lot of people watching this who think this is really a distasteful company. And I'm buying their stuff or my kids or my grandkids are buying their stuff. Is our only response, as with other deeply immoral companies like Facebook, a, a, a Nike ban? Do we just need to stop buying their gear and say, we'll only start buying again when you, when you start behaving in a more moral fashion? 
I think so. That might be the only lever that, a, you know, a customer, a citizen has. You know, there's things that Nike could do uh, to help the sport that they care so much about, the sport of running or any other sport, you know, with how much money they have. You know, they could really change the landscape of doping in sport if they chose to. And they, they haven't taken that. Uh, they haven't uh, taken that step. They, they don't seem to care about it. Like I said, they will rehire an athlete after he gets caught doping. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's all we have as customers. We cannot give them our dollars. And, and that's speaking as loudly as we can, unfortunately. How do they compare with a, an Adidas or a Puma or other sporting goods companies? Are some of these other companies, perhaps non-American companies, uh, are they a little bit more grown up and moral in their behavior? It does seem like that on some level. Um, there's a thread in the book, you know, I call it Nike's um, original sin. You know, Adidas seems to think the reason Nike gained dominance in the sports shoe market was because they were willing to use sweatshops. And so, you know, if you were to ask an executive at Adidas privately, he'd tell you, you know, we weren't willing to use sweatshops to the extent as Nike. And that's what gave them the market domination that they have and that they still enjoy. So that that might be their original sin. And um, to answer your question, it seems like, you know, some of the athletic contracts, which have come under question lately, that they're very similar between brands. But you have to remember, you know, before uh, Nike, Adidas was the major brand, but there wasn't professional running back then. There were a few professional athletes. So Nike helped create these contracts from the beginning. Um, and becoming the dominant player in the marketplace means the other brands would just copy and paste. You know, they would give similar deals, of course, less money involved. But um, so Nike really has been the leader for, for so many years that um, I feel like they're particularly egregious. Well, you've convinced me, Matt. No more Nike shoes for me. And your book, Win at All Costs, is a really important uh, uh, revelation of, of what's really happening with uh, this company and its Im immoral behavior. Uh, I would strongly suggest everyone look at it who um, who's interested in, in the morality or the lack of morality in American sports you're in Boulder, Colorado, not a bad place to be stuck in the pandemic, but still you're stuck in the pandemic. What else should people be reading in these strange times, Matt? Oh, if they're interested in this sort of narrative nonfiction, uh, I really enjoyed Catch and Kill from Ronan Farrow. Um, that's a book I liked. And I think Born, uh, Bad Blood by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the Wall Street Journal, John Kerry, was pretty good too. Might suggest those. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.